Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Welcome to episode number 40 of Post Woke. And we live in a culture that seems to just love round numbers. I'm not sure episode 40 is more monumental than number 39 or number 41, but because people love round numbers, you'll see when you get to the end, I did a story of the week that somewhat relates to the number 40. Before that, I have an incredible interview with a profound thinker and musician and writer by the name of Tessa Lena. And in fact, without any further ado, let's get to that conversation. Okay, I'm here with Tessa Lena. Tessa, welcome to Post Woke. Oh, thank you, Mickey. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. Um, before we start our conversation, would you be kind enough to tell me and my audience um, what you think we should know about you? Oh, well, that's an interesting question because, well, <laughs> the minute is a very short time and I already spent half of it. So, but, uh, so I was born and raised in Moscow. And uh, so I caught the fall of the Soviet Union. I was a still a very little child when it happened. So that gave me perspective on what happens when systems crash and how mm. my, uh, well, the entire generation of my grandparents was essentially betrayed by the state kind of, you know, twice. First, when they were propagandized, and then when they were told that propaganda was nonsense. And so that was my early childhood memory, and I remember that. And then I spent most of my adult life in actually in the United States. And so I saw a similar trajectory with its own features here, and especially in the past two years. So I've been involved, well, I'm a musician, that was my main thing, but also I did linguistics and many other things. And I was, as a musician, I was involved in big tech activism. So that brought me to research in transhumanism for, you know, some years before COVID. And then uh, when 2020 happened and I saw how crazy it was, I just had to open my mouth like big and rest is history. Okay. Um I'm going to come back to the systems crash part, but I just want to say for the audience again, there's going to be links in the show notes i put in there your website your Substack, your um band camp your instagram because tessa does a lot of stuff like you you have a podcast that i don't know if you if you if that's currently up and running but there's episodes that they can go back and find and it has a name make language great again which once you just said the word linguistics i now i understand where that perhaps where that name comes from <laughs> but i want to i want to focus where you said I was in the Soviet Union and I got an experience of what it's like when a system collapses. And that sounded cryptic enough to think that um, that experience is coming in handy since March 2020. So would um, for starters, would you just like to tell us a little bit of how your life and your perspective has changed over the past two plus years? Uh, well, over the past two plus years, I cannot say it changed. I am disappointed in how flimsy uh, the PR-based idea of democracy was. I thought it was a little bit stronger, even though it was seemingly clear that it was mostly public relations to begin with. Mm -hmm. But 
people in charge had to lie a lot and make a lot of effort to make it look very plausible that we did have a freedom, we did have a democracy, all those things. So in the past two years, they kind of lost that layer of pretense for the most part. And they no longer care to even look like they're democratic, just like it was, say, well, in the Soviet Union, or to some extent, you know, in, in Russia, post-Soviet space altogether, because the psychology is different. So my biggest, my biggest revelation was like, wow, the Soviet Union is back. I never thought. And that's not a comment on isms necessarily, but just that entire system of essentially domineering over citizens without even pretending that it's not happening. Like, wow. I, yeah, I didn't think that I would see it again in my lifetime. I couldn't imagine why you would think that. And 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 I don't know what, well, I'll just ask you, what was your, you, you touched on it a little bit there, but what was your expectation upon getting to the U.S. besides um, thinking there would be at least a little more pretense as to how, the, how um, much the democracy is a facade here? Well, I didn't really have much of an expectation. I mean, I didn't come for any kind of political reasons because at that point, the Soviet Union was long gone. And it was awesome, like that entire post-Soviet space. Western journalists like to say that it was torture and the 90s were torture and it was just all horrible, perhaps for adults. But for me as a kid, present to freedom and Western music and all that, that was just awesome. That was freedom from here to horizon, or so we thought. But there was that expression and Western bands all of a sudden accessible, not banned. It was just really, really great. And one time... Well, one time for New Year's, we didn't have chocolate. I remember that. That was tragic. But beyond <laughs> that, beyond that, the, the feeling is people really believed at that time when it crashed. I remember that. And again, I was a kid, but we were all glued to the television, listening to various political sessions of the parliament. And everybody believed the politicians are honest all of a sudden now, just like in America. Well, wink, wink. But uh, so that was really the feeling was very real. And it was very powerful. And maybe I was naive, but I think it was shared by many people. So uh, when I came to the United States, it was just because I was curious and I wanted to do more Tibetan studies and linguistics. And I, might, I, I did Tibetan studies. Uh, so it was ju just to see, to travel, I was curious. So it was not any kind of like fleeing something for freedom. And then actually when I arrived initially in, in the United States, um, almost immediately I ended up uh, in Chicago because I had a friend who I met in Tibet. And so he wanted me to visit and like one thing led to another and like another story. But uh, I found it actually very boring in Chicago because uh, Moscow is a very fast city. It's like New York. Well, New York before 2020. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Chicago is a very charming, very beautiful place, but the culture is a lot slower. But the uh, self-identity is of a big city, but the culture is significantly slower. And then you have to be nice. So it was kind of like political political correctness before political correctness. Wow. So, and, and I was very you know, it just didn't fit my personality very well. I mean, there's different places, different personalities, there's beauty in everything. And because I didn't really know the rest of the country, so I was like, okay, I'm in America, so I mean, like, just deal with it. And and my circles in Moscow were very 
like intellectual, artsy, lofty, very much into those brainy things and philosophy and arts. And then my circles in Chicago so happened were very not that. So mm. I I was feeling kind of just I started deflating gradually because I thought, okay, so this is this is America. I'm here, and then I wanted to play a corporate game. I decided to work with computers because whatever, I'll, I'll be normal, finally, finally, I'll be normal. So I did that, then I ended up marrying an abusive guy, like really, really badly abusive. And that was very good preparation for 2020. And I'm not being sarcastic because uh, that actually, that shaped me in many ways because here I was like very, very young still and uh, very idealistic. And so trying to play corporate game, but in many ways, like still a kid, right? And so I married this guy and and he's, when we were dating, he was wonderful. And then he turns into this monster and I have no idea how to deal with it because I'm used to like good schools, good jobs. People say I'm smart. And that self-identity after going to go schools in the West or, you know, Moscow, I mean, like still kind of the West in that sense, you cannot imagine that such stupid thing can happen to you. So I was in denial for a very long time and it was really, really bad. And then he went to authorities. He said that I was probably a Russian spy and I was arrested. And I mean, it was just the entire thing turned into a complete nightmare. And I was in denial of being in an abusive relationship pretty much until the point when there was just, I was pretty much stuck against the wall to, it was really, the nightmare was real. And it took me many years to get over that. And that whole experience did two things. One, I realized that the price of not standing up for yourself is very, very high. And also I realized that the democracy is not real, kind of. I mean, there's this leeway where people can do their thing, but the sacred principle of like honest law and order i'm sure it exists i'm sure it exists to this day a lot more here than say in my birth homeland and that is still true but i was talking to officers who knew very well that i wasn't a spy and they were like they knew everything about me they, they there's no way they didn't know that i wasn't a spy and yet they were trying to scare me and intimidate me and just really mean. And I mean, like, what do you do to a like kid? Uh, I was in early 20s, like naive, completely pure-minded, even though I had this abusive man. I mean, I think that if you're an agent of some sort, you see that. Like, you, you can tell a spy from non-spy. And, and yet they were doing all this to me. Hmm. So that, that kind of broke me for a while. And I was completely exhausted. I was just like, I was wow. just collecting myself for, for years after that. And probably I, I was trying to hide it, obviously. So I was still carrying on and living my life and doing things. But that was very, very painful. And then I thought for many years, like, why? first of all, why did I have to be such an idiot? Where, first of all, like this guy, first, like, first thing he did something physical, I should have just run or gone to police or whatever like what what what's wrong like why did i wouldn't why didn't i do, do that and so i had to think that and then i was thinking why did it happen altogether like what did i do to deserve it and 
then when 2020 happened it made perfect sense because mm -hmm. i was prepared because when i started seeing the messaging that was along the lines of don't trust your senses don't trust your instincts if you trust your instincts over instructions then you're a bad person i was like wait 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 a second yeah <laughs> where did i hear that precisely wow. and that just that helped me to pretty much snap out of it like within a couple of weeks and i was like wait a second this is just too f because i've heard this story i know the ending and I know that if you just believe those messages, then it doesn't go anywhere in any good place. So that helped me. So, so let me, let me, before, before I address anything you said towards the end, I just want to say, I appreciate you, you honestly sharing like that. And, um, I feel what you just shared is so important because I've interacted with so many, um, smart, bright, sharp women who, you can't believe when they get in this situation the way you described as if it's for some other kind of woman. And, and then when you realize, oh no, I'm in this situation, you become um, someone that could be so powerful as a messenger to explain it. And then also to recognize the abusive paradigm, how it can be, the template can be used on a, a macro or a micro scale. And so I just want to say thank you for being so honest and sharing like that. But then I, I really, really appreciate the the uh, connection to the the gaslighting, like the way the state, starting in March 2020, started telling us who we could hang out with, right? Like an abusive man saying, I don't like your friends, don't be with them. Like suddenly you can't be with your grandparents, even if they're sick. And you can't, like just this control over every small ass facet of our life is um, a macrocosm of the domestic abuse template. It, it doesn't have to be one-on-one. -on -one. The same way that cults are like that. There can be one-on-one -on -one cults and there can be massive cults, but the the mindset, the conditioning that they do um, applies in either case. And I wanted to come back to what you said um, in your when you were being uh, in the bio in the early part where you said, um, I expect like when, 20, when March 2020 happened, it was as if the U.S. just let down the pretense and just allowed itself the full, the full tyranny to come out. And I'm wondering, do you think that's because is that a conscious decision that they were aware that the majority of us had been sufficiently conditioned that they no longer needed to uh, to to put up this facade and they could just tell us what to do and we would thank them for it? Uh, well, to me, it feels like, and again, those things we can only theorize. Yeah. Well. When it gets conspiratorial, we can use our instincts and our best information, but it's really, I mean, like a series of theory, right? But I think that they're so, the leaders of the Western states are so beholden by, by the balls, essentially, to BlackRock and, you know, investors of that level that they just, it's kind of like if you're being threatened by a big mafia guy, I, the, I, I think then you likely are more worried about what the mob guy will do to you if you don't obey than what you look like, you know, in a meeting or on TV or whatever. So I think I have a feeling that most likely they kind of feel like they don't have a choice. But again, they also need to be pre-corrupt because a normal human being who is relatively healthy in the head and spiritually in that situation would probably act different. 
but I think that they're probably under pressure and it's almost it's almost as if somebody made a decision to pull the plug and then they got the, me the, the memo. And again, I have no idea. Obviously, I don't know. Luckily, I wasn't included in that memo, which I'm very happy about. Yes. But, but it seems like they were, their behavior was so blatant. It was so... Like, normally, they would at least care to pretend. They would say nice words. And I mean, they still do that. But the, to a lot lesser degree and how they came down on protests well, protests against the mandate and such, there was just no no pretense. And I, I was recently talking to Paul Kudenek and he was, uh, he, and he lives in France and he was talking about the, you know, the yellow vests before COVID, how they were really cracking down on the protesters and the yellow vest protesters in a way that is not typical for the West because people can see and everybody has telephones and it doesn't look good. So they seemed to just stop caring. And with all the illogic and the lies uh, over, you know, COVID and the different measures and the, the, you know, the injections. So they, they just say something, then the next day they say the op opposite and they don't care to explain. And that is more like, you know, free for all, like Soviet corruption, where a leader can say, you know what, I'm corrupt, deal with it. Mm. And so it's like, okay, so he is corrupt, you know, at least he's honest. But... They started, it's, it's almost like, I, I, I don't know, maybe they felt like the people are ready for that kind of treatment, or maybe they were surprised how successful it was. But I do think that there was external, again, it's complex, give and take. Everybody had their own, I'm sure, like financial interest or whatnot. Or maybe they were told that, okay, if you comply, then you'll stay whatever, president or whoever they are. And if you don't comply, be, you know, watch out. I mean, I don't know. But it seems like that kind of dynamic probably took place. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty valid perception of it, because I agree with you, where, yet we have to um, own up to where we're speculating and then to where we're citing uh, facts and research. But um, it reminds me, when you talk about this um, this power higher than what we perceive to be this power, this power above that, for example, the World Economic Forum, I mean, their plan is so insidious, like to have this young global leaders where they train these, they, they, they identify early on people like the um, prime minister of New Zealand, the president of, of France, and they, they identify them early on and train them in this great reset mentality. And then when they get elected, they no longer even have to control them. It's almost as if they're just waiting for, if they're not, they might not even be waiting for orders. They've, they're already in that mindset, which would then bring you your mafia meta metaphor in there, you don't have to tell uh, a mafia captain um, how it works. You, he wouldn't have reached captain if he didn't internalize all those values. So I think that's a pretty valid um, uh, comparison. And it does, it, it calls to mind a recent post of yours in which you talked about how we've been bombarded with these lies over the past two years, but there are much bigger lies that we've been, we've been bombarded by for generation after generation. So, I mean, there's there's the vaccines, the masks, the Great Reset, but we live um, in uh, like a parasitic uh, culture. And you started to identify the, the more complex and sort of almost invisible lies that we buy into then to make us more susceptible 
to these uh, newer lies that they're um, in, that they're imposing upon us. So I don't know if I got that correctly, but would you care to elaborate on that? No, I think you you gave a very good description of what I was trying to say. So thank you. So yeah, the, the, this topic of living in a world that is built on lies that are passed from one generation to another, alongside trauma and confusion and pain and hurt and anger, I think that is a well, that is really the problem that we're dealing with. And uh, my opinion is that the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution and all those things that we are dealing with very directly right now, that they are more or less just the, the, the latest development of the same old. And the same old started a very long time ago when people decided, at least you know, to my senses, when people decided that it would be a great idea to essentially treat nature as either the enemy or the devil or a resource. But that whole separation where people decided, okay, so we're not we're not a part of nature, nature nature's evil, nature's dangerous, or nature's exploitable. So and we have to, I think it's almost like if we were to describe it in theological terms, it's almost like people as a species were not happy with being a part of the you know creation process in a limited manner where okay, people only can see as much as people see, and we're extremely creative and we create a lot of things in our lives, and that's what makes us happy. But it's almost as if people decided, okay, we want to recreate the entire thing. So we want to just completely pretend that there's no limit to our power and we're going to recreate the entire explanation of the world and what it means to be human. Kind of like Klaus Schwab says, you know, we want to rethink what it means to be human. But obviously the language changed greatly from whatever, a few thousand years ago to, to now because at the time people thought a lot about theological terms so i think some of the, those terms were swapped just like the term public health was swapped today and today people pride themselves in being rational and lots of people don't believe there's god and so the language that they're using is mechanical engineering language and you know heaven and earth so we'll make it equitable of course which means that they own everything and then the rest is struggling for crumbles but they call it equitable so a lot of it has to do i think with swapping meanings of basic words like for example there's something that i i think about quite a bit when uh in that case it was europeans who went ahead and colonized other continents right but the, so the language that was used had a lot to do with Christianity, for example, in that case. And again, it's not exclusive to Christianity. Every belief under the sun has been used for good and for bad. But because I come from, from Europe and you know, I'm more familiar with that, with that particular belief system. So people said, okay, because those pagans are not Christian, we can kill them, we can murder them, we can steal their stuff, we can steal their land, and it's good because they're not Christian. So obviously, I think that if actual historical Jesus Christ observed that, he would just weep and turn a lot of tables. 
becomes yeah. nonsense. But nonetheless, that was used. And because people always want something sacred, and, and then telling them that, oh, your faith, the way you communicate with God, the, the name that you uh, use to call, to appeal to God, you, makes you a better person than them. I mean, that's a very treacherous move because then, then you mix something that is absolutely quintessential to our existence, the, you know, the mystery, the spiritual, whatever words people use for that. But that, we all have that feeling. You use that and then you mix it with lies, like big time lies. And then it creates horrible confusion. And then, again, at the time, Europeans were extremely, well, most Europeans, let's say commoners, mostly they had a horrible life. I mean, they, they were humiliated because, you know, the, the commons were destroyed. So they were impoverished and like the cities were developing, they were impoverished, they were doing horribly, a lot of people. And so that misery was then used to transport them, to lure them to the new world, to, to, the, to this hemisphere where we are, and to use them as an army essentially against the original people of this land who were just minding their business and didn't mm -hmm. ask for like being converted or anything like that. So, but first without misery in Europe, in this case, this other misery would have been impossible. So it's this chain of misery, creating more misery, creating more misery. And by the way, by this principle, so they did that. And then now in modernity, so past World War II, uh, life in America was actually pretty good, right? So, the, yes, there were foreign wars and oil prices and orphans and, and widows. But if you were a middle-class person in America, your life was pretty good. One of the best places to be in that sense, right? But then it seems like the misery is coming back home. So people who used to be exempt from all that abuse by virtue of being Americans, so now they're no longer exempt. But then by that logic, at this point, that misery is going to reach even, you know, the Klaus Schwab and his handlers and masters, because it's just seems existential inevitable. So whatever they're trying to do now to common people in the West, it's going to reach them. So they're going to be bitten. Mm. Anyway, I said a lot. No, I'm, I was... You had my, I was my going a million miles an hour thinking and processing what you were saying. And because you brought spirituality into it, I, and I really appreciated everything you said, I do want to um, bring up that I've seen a video of you. Um, I've been to a couple of rallies here in New York City, but I, as far as I know, I haven't crossed paths with you. But you gave a talk at a video where you defined what's going on now as a spiritual war. So two questions. Does that connect partially to this history that you just laid out, bringing us to where we are now? And can you um, elaborate on why you call this current situation a spiritual war? Well, I think that the nature of the, and, and, and thank you, by the way, and I think that the nature of what's going on is, in existential terms, is an opportunity for us to remember that we're not separate from that life's mystery and we're not separate from nature because we've been trying as a species, we've been trying to insist that we're separate. And because, well, I believe it's it's, I mean, like, it's not factual. We, we are a part of all this. 
and we're not machines and we're not robots. So the predators serve the existential purpose of creating enough disturbances so that we, the majority of people, are forced to deal with that. So the issue is existential. But people, and it means, I think, all people, the smartest people, the most brilliant people, the, the wisest people, like it's human nature to uh, get comfortable to not really address an important thing unless it hurts. And we all, I am sure, like we've all done that in different, in different Absolutely. situations. So I think because we kind of collectively started getting complacent about matters. So here we are, we are served with this thing so that we are, our, our complacent thinking is disrupted. But then from there, ideally, thinking goes into like wait 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 so like what is the bigger problem what is the underlying existential problem and then from there people remember their soul in individual wonderful beautiful ways uh in whatever whatever their faith is or you know whatever faith they find and then from there it's an entirely different matter and there's an entirely different and beautiful tragic story if it goes on the other hand in the space of oh everything is so horrible just horrible and suffering and suffering then the process takes longer i think the result is the same like the result is going to be beautiful but we don't know when as in three years three thousand years unknown people take mm. time but i think if we think about this entire thing historically we've lived probably for millions of years we exist as human beings and this whole glitch where we think that we are going to be so cool by defying natural laws and pretending that we're machines that or, or, or before that this entire thing where like god hates gay people or whatnot like and i and i'm being you know dramatic but that kind of mentality yeah so when th that phase in which people started inventing different things and ascribing it to higher powers instead of actually trying to understand what the higher powers are saying I think it's a very short phase. It's almost like being a teenager. Like when the teenager, and I think about it almost this way, because for a while we were a humankind collectively. It was like a child, like relatively pure, not perfect at all, but relatively pure, relatively harmonious. Then, you know, when a te teenager, human teenager, uh, when a person becomes a teenager, it's all of a sudden me, 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 everybody's an idiot. I am going to figure it out and break everything and... But that's an important transition. So I think we're kind of going through this phase, but then it goes back to harmony because when the teenager gets to deal with trouble sufficiently, he's like, oh, adults weren't actually they're so stupid. Actually, they had a point. So <laughs> I, I think this is where we're going to end up. But, uh, well, this was in response, uh, in response to why I think it's a spiritual battle. But then I also think that a lot of people today are finding their strength in uh, their spiritual belief and different different faiths or you know non-denominational non faiths but a lot of people find their strength in that and it's actually very very interesting that while the name of say christianity was used by politicians 5,000 or 500 years ago to create bloodshed and steal and rape 
and that's completely sacrilegious in my opinion. That's I mean that's a really mm -hmm. bad thing to do. But they did that. But then today that same name, that same feeling, or that same formal belief system helps people to actually fight that great reset and those powers who are trying to enslave. And that wow. just says that human spirit is so beautiful. I mean, we find we're like grass that grows through asphalt. Yes. I I, I it, let me first say I was I have notes in front of me and there was I said at some point I do want to I really try with my interviews on here to have very blunt and realistic conversations even if the even if the subject matter um, doesn't sound very optimistic but I try to to ask the guests to talk about what positive signs they see or what makes them feel optimism and as you segued into that that the teenage part and all, I was thinking like, well, she knew exactly what I was going to ask. You sort of asked the spiritual, answered the spiritual war question and unknowingly my follow-up because I I can completely relate to you. I, I'm somebody, I'm born and raised in New York. I've been involved in traditional activism here. I was for a long time, like, you know, right up until like Occupy Wall Street. And then this came this point where I said, I need to do more direct work, directly helping people. Um, I don't like where the where this quote unquote left is going. And since COVID, the left has completely abandoned me. And I've made new connections with people who pri previously I wouldn't have even encountered, never mind even gotten along. We just wouldn't have been in the same circles. And I do find that those people, that, that my new friends, my new allies, are speaking in more spiritual terms and have inspired me to feel more comfortable feeling that way too. I went to 12 years of Catholic school, so they're not inspiring me to go back to being a Catholic. But as you said, that non-denominational uh, spirituality and faith where you realize that the Great Reset could be overcome by a great awakening doesn't sound like some um, mumbo jumbo or fantasy. When I talk to people who are standing up every day in one way or another to this to this uh, tr this alleged transition, I find myself being more inspired by this than when, when I used to be in left activism. So um, I don't know. Were you would you said that you were kind of moving in lefty circles in your life? Has your experience been similar, where you find yourself less comfortable or less welcome with people who identify as leftist? You know, it is such a funny question. I was originally completely unaware of American politics for a while, being an immigrant and being uh, adamantly apolitical as far as, uh, well, you know, the political activism goes. So that was my, when I was a teenager, when I was artsy teenager, I was completely purposely apolitical. So I kind of carried it over here and I had no idea about like two part. I mean, I knew I, I knew the formal stuff, but I didn't know that it was such an important emotional matter to Americans, you know, like Democrats versus Republicans. I was completely naive to that. And then eventually I gravitated once I moved to New York, uh, I gravitated towards the liberal. So it just so happened like my musician friends. And it's not like I started caring about politics per se, but it just so happened that my friends were mostly on the left and like mainstream proper Democrats. And, you know, they were saying things and, and I was kind of imbibing it. And it never made me like strongly political in that sense. I didn't really care. 
but that was kind of you know friend circle just the the talking points i okay. internalized some of the talking points and then of course when COVID happened then i found myself uh, not in the same space as my friends <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and some of them are so brave they were involved in the musician activism movement that where i was in and we shared so many you know, great, brave moments together, like inspiring from the heart, really. So I love them as brothers and sisters. I think it's very strange that they're on the other side. I don't try to convince them, but I have to say that I did not attempt to ingratiate myself with people who are adamant about those things. I mean, I just say what I say. If people from my past circles say something then depending on how they do it i manage i mean with some i think in a very hearty manner like in private i say you know what we disagree but i love you and they say well we disagree and i love you so i'm like it's all great Good. and then with some they 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 think that i've lost my marbles and <laughs> but only a couple a couple of people got rude and i you know i just didn't really sweat it i mean like for, for, for I, I guess initially it was very the, 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 felt very tragic, but then I got over it. And so I guess same, I guess I can confirm your yeah. story. <laughs> yeah, it seems like anyone, because growing up in New York, um, the immediately, if I met you under different circumstances 10 years ago and saw you performing somewhere, um, my, if if I was forced to assume because you were in artsy circles, I would assume that you at least leaned to the left. That seemed to be the way it's really always been in New York. And so, uh, I, so even if you didn't clearly say I am a member of the left, it just it just kind of the way New York went, particularly before it went it before it got completely disnified where where you know the the alphabet city and downtown was a certain way and it was really like words and music were like dripping off the buildings down there for a while and and so i would have assumed that you were of the left but um it's more interesting to see how you sort of were a an interested observer and you didn't get too ideologically attached to anything which was really wise of you because i i i did i got ideologically attached and so then when people started deleting me on social media or calling me names there was that you used the word tragic it did feel particularly jarring and tragic but it's two and a half years now and I, I have met new people and i just met you like i meet i meet people and i'm like all right people are out here doing stuff they're inspiring they're staying optimistic and they're looking for ways to move into a different future than what the powers that shouldn't be are trying to force us into so i i truly admire that um we're running out of time here, and I didn't even, maybe we'll do a follow-up at some time, because I didn't really even get to ask you about your music and your writing. But as I said, I'm going to include um, all your links in the show notes, and I encourage the listeners to to click and follow up and learn more about you and follow you. But I just, um, I want to say thank you for being here. And if you have any type of like closing notes or thoughts or message that you would like to share, um, the floor is yours. Well, first of all, thank you again for having me. And yeah, hopefully people can find my writing and my music from the links. As far as the closing notes, I think, well, my biggest closing message is don't allow anybody mess with your head. 
because I mean that's what they're doing. They're trying to mess with our heads, and repetition does work. And fear bombarding people with fear, this sort or another. If it's not COVID, then it's the you know the, the great reset as an inevitable enslaving condition. And we have no idea whether they succeed. They might succeed, but we still have our soul, and we will eventually get through that and be happy on the other end. And that's without a doubt. Amen to that. Um, Tessa, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, and I would love to do a follow-up in the relatively near future because I would like to give to hear your thoughts um, where we could focus more on your artistic ventures and hear about your music background. And because I have read your bio on your website and I know you have so many fascinating uh, uh, experiences in your life. And um, please tell me that you'll come back in the near future and we could perhaps do a more of an arts fo focused conversation. Oh, absolutely. Fantastic. To. So thank you again. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Mickey. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'll be right back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. This is my Substack where I produce daily content, uh, articles, posts, and podcasts. And some of it is exclusively for paid subscribers. And also paid subscribers are the ones who are able to comment on such posts. So for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you get access to all of this. And you also are offering essential support for a project that I want to keep going and growing. So I thank you in advance for that. In the meantime, please feel free to peruse the show notes to find a link for the project that I've been running for nearly six years, a one-man mission to help homeless women on the streets of New York City. Also in the show notes, you will find a link to purchase a really cool post-woke t-shirt to let the world know what your favorite podcast is. And one more thing in the show notes is a link to my NFT photography collection in case you're interested in purchasing a non-fungible token. So I thank you for your time and for checking out all those links. And please, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. It makes a huge difference. I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. Now this story is at least tangentially related to this being my 40th episode number 40. So keep that in mind. Um, I'll begin by saying that I am a sucker for community sing-alongs. For example, for many, many years, I would go every year on October 9th and December 8th to Strawberry Fields in Central Park. Of course, it's, Strawberry Fields was created to honor John Lennon, who lived directly across the street and unfortunately was killed directly across the street. So on his birthday, October 9th, and on the anniversary of his death, December 8th, people would gather and sing Beatles songs that John wrote or his solo stuff. And people would show up with instruments, primarily guitars, but it, there were years where there were bass players, keyboardists. One time there was a trumpet player, a full drum set. And so hundreds and hundreds of people just constantly rotating. One day, I think in 2008, I must have stayed there for about six hours, maybe going back and forth to get something to eat. So the people would come and go, but mostly they'd stick around and sing at least five or six songs, everybody singing together. So that's the, that's the preface here. But, um, now, 
there was a time when U2 was the biggest rock and roll band in the world. And let's put aside Bono's buffoonery and U2's rapid decline in relevance and songwriting. But in their prime, I saw them live many times, and it was as much a revival meeting as a concert. It was the, it was very bonding, and I always enjoyed it. They put on a great show. And they at that time period, they would close all their performances with a song called 40. And it's named 40 because the lyrics are based on Psalm 40. And as you may or may not know, you two is or was, I don't really know where they stand now, but certainly in their prime, they were an openly Christian band. So 40, the song, would end with the band leaving the stage one by one. Bono would go first, then Adam Clayton, who the bass player who would play guitar on this song, then The Edge, the guitar player who was playing bass on this song, and then it would leave Larry Mullen Jr. just keeping the beat with the drums. The entire time, the audience was singing the chorus to the song. And I will include um, a video in the show notes, a link to a video to give you an idea. Um, now, one particular time I saw you two at the Meadowlands Arena, which I think at the time was still called the Brendan Byrne Arena in New Jersey. So let me explain the setup. You would park in a massive parking lot and then to enter the area where you would actually go into the show, you would have to go up a flight of stairs and go on this little bridge that was covered um, in corrugated tin, and then you'd walk about the length of a football field and go down a flight of stairs, and then you were just a few steps from entering the arena. So the the show was great. The band played 40, and the crowd sang How Long to Sing This Song, the um, chorus, in unison, even as we left the arena. And as we got to the covered bridge, this, the, the, the voices got louder, and once we were in that elevated tunnel of sorts, thousands of voices were echoing, bouncing, uh, echoing and bouncing off the metal walls. And I could still recall the chills I felt for those few minutes of collective joy. And in a culture like ours, you don't often get such moments. So I cling to these memories with all I've got. Now. I don't need to tell, I don't need anyone to tell me that Bono is an asshole and that you two devolved into self-parody a long, long time ago. That does not deter my gratitude for the moment I just described, does not deter it one single iota. You can appreciate art while feeling some level of disdain for the artist. It just requires you to keep your guard up. <laughs> <laughs> 